I've always wanted to talk about what originally was entitled Farmer Fred's Garden Rules. But I received so much, shall we say, negative feedback about using the word rules that one nurseryman said, be a little gentler. Call it something else. So it's Farmer Fred's 11 Garden Tips for Success. And actually, in gardening, there are no rules, really, because if it works for you, well, who am I to say no? In fact, that's one of the garden rules. But we'll get into all that between now and whenever, and then we'll take your questions afterwards. That That's my backyard in the uh, slide you're looking at there with the raised beds. Raised beds are excellent for uh, gardening, as you probably know, because in Folsom, we have rotten soil, too. The, the official trowel of uh, Folsom is a pickaxe. And that uh, beautiful plant on the right-hand side there is a Brugmansia. That's the Charles Grimaldi Brugmansia that I started from a cutting. It was working at a neighbor's house, and I thought, well, let's try it and see. And it did fine until this winter. And now only a portion of it is alive, but it's an amazing plant that has more comebacks in it than any other plant you can think of. So I'm sure it will get back to its original glory. So we will be talking about 11 garden tips for success. By the way, uh, you probably noticed I'm not on the radio anymore. Um, okay, I do a podcast. It's the uh, Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Anybody here listen to the podcast? <sighs> Anybody here not know what a podcast is? Okay, fair enough. But you probably know how to get on the internet. Right? Okay. If you go to gardenbasics.net, and that's actually on the sheet that you may have a copy of on the back side at gardenbasics.net, you can listen to the podcast there, and they'll send you a weekly reminder, too, when, the, when every podcast comes out on every Friday, too. So that way you'll, you'll never miss one episode. And there's already something like 260, 270 episodes of the Garden Basics podcast. Been doing it now for over three years. And uh, it's almost like a little encyclopedia of gardening. And I hear from a lot of people across the country who are listening to all the episodes and learning a lot, and that's just great. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. I wish Debbie Flower could be here. Originally, she was going to be here appearing with us, and she is a retired college horticultural professor. She taught at Sierra College, American River College, and many other uh, local universities, and she's very informative, very knowledgeable about horticulture, and uh, loads of fun, And but she is traveling the country, so she can have a vacation, I guess. All right, 11 garden tips for success. All gardening is local. And I'm not necessarily referring to the fact that your relatives in Wisconsin cannot grow, say, that Brugmansia plant you saw. Uh, we are in USDA Zone 9, and we can grow a whole host of plants in our area. But even in your own yard, there are warmer areas, there are colder areas. How many of you have a successful avocado tree growing? Congratulations. Well, it's grown, but yeah, that's what we get from a lot of people in our area because at this point in time, avocado trees are really a Southern California staple, especially coastal Southern California. Here in the interior of California, if it gets too hot or too cold or too dry, avocado trees suffer. But if you hunt around in your own yard, you may find an ideal location where an avocado tree grows. It would have to be the warmest part of the yard that gets shaded from heavy winds and maybe get some afternoon shade. Usually it's a, a narrow side yard. 
I don't know why you'd want an avocado tree in a narrow side yard, but if you want avocados and that's your only choice, that's the way to go. One of the best ways to determine the warmest and coldest places in your yard is not by that thermometer that you have attached to the side of your house. Get some portable thermometers that record both the high and the low temperatures and put them out in several places around the yard and keep track of not only the high temperatures, but especially the low temperatures, which means getting out in the yard around 7 a.m. and seeing where the warmer spots are and where the colder spots are. If you're trying to grow a tropical plant, you'll want that warmer spot where the lows aren't going to dip down very much below 40, 45 degrees. A lot of tropicals don't like it below 50. Well, we're out of luck in that regard. But again, it's for the time being. Who knows what we'll be growing in 10 or 20 years. So monitor those low temperatures and find the warmest area. I think one of the best pieces of advice I, I can give a gardener, especially those who have just moved to a new home, is wait a while and do a lot of walking. Walk the neighborhood. See what's growing in your neighborhood. Make friends with these people you see gardening. Gardeners are the friendliest people around, and they'll be glad to show you their yard. Hey, that's how I get cuttings. <laughs> but, but you can also see what works and what doesn't work. And if you fall in love with certain plants growing in your neighborhood and you like it, give those a try. Don't try to bring in your, your old standby favorites from, oh, I don't know, San Francisco or Los Angeles or Reno or wherever you might happen to be from because chances are the environment here is just a little too harsh for those plants. I also advise people, too, if they just moved into a house, is don't redo your yard that first year. Live with it for a full year and watch the sun. Monitor the sun. Take pictures on a regular basis, like every month. Take a picture of the yard where you want the garden, the portion of the yard where you want to put a, a productive garden, but take pictures of it once a month. Take a picture at 9 a.m., take a picture at noon, take a picture at 3 o'clock, and then again at 6 o'clock. And do that year-round. And that way you'll have a record of where the sun is and which areas has the most sun. When we say full sun, we're usually talking 8 hours, but it could be 6 to 8 hours. But once you start dropping below 6 hours of direct sun a day, a lot of staples that we like to grow, you're going to have to rethink. And not necessarily rethink to different plants, but maybe just different varieties. And I'm thinking in terms of vegetables, there's a lot of tomatoes, especially smaller tomatoes that do well in four to six hours. And uh, there are other peppers, too, that will do well with four to six hours. If you like really hot peppers, though, then you need a lot of full sun. You definitely need more than eight hours. So live with your house for a year. Live with it. Take those pictures. Watch the sun. Watch where the rain goes, too. Watch how the water drains. Water has a way. You don't want to be planting in mud. If you find muddy areas and that's where you want to put a garden, go with raised beds. Go with container gardening. Know your soil. You're not feeding plants. You're feeding the soil. You're not watering the plant. You're watering the soil. It's what's going down there that makes your plants successes or failures. It's all about the microbiology moving that water around. It's all about air in the soil, too. It's all about the nutrients in the soil that makes for a successful garden. And a soil test will let you know that. The trick is trying to find an inexpensive soil test. 
if you start calling around, you're going to hear bids of $100, $150 to do a soil test. For my measly garden, you want that kind of money? They're used to dealing with agriculture, so they can get that kind of money. But for a home garden, I think one of your best bets is using one of the three universities that does provide home gardeners a full complement of testing services. The University of Massachusetts Amherst, Colorado State University, and Texas A&M. They all offer a complete soil test at around $15 to $20. Now, it's your job to dig up the soil and do it right and send it to them, but they give you very explicit directions on how to dig up that soil sample and mail it off to them. And you're going to get back a soil report that says, and they're going to ask you too, well, what are you trying to grow? And when you tell them, then they'll come back with recommendations about how to get your soil in shape to grow that particular plant. So there will be results about pH. There will be results about micronutrients and macronutrients. Macronutrients, the big ones, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. By the way, everybody needs nitrogen. Don't worry if you find a uh, test and it comes back that you're low in nitrogen. All soils are low in nitrogen. Nitrogen wants to be a gas, so it disappears very quickly. That's why amending your soil every year, keeping it covered in mulch is great because you're slowly feeding the soil year-round. Uh, there are test kits you can buy at various nurseries, and they will at least show you the pH of the soil. The better ones will also provide you the information about the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium labels in your soil. What do nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium do as a fertilizer or as chemicals in the soil for your plants? I love the terms that Janelle Schoeninger, who is the uh, consultant and organic gardening teacher for Kellogg Garden Products, describes this. She says, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, up, down, and all around. Nitrogen for green growth. Phosphorus for the roots. Potassium for all-around vigor of your plant. And there should be a balance between the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Too much of any one thing is not a better thing. It can be worse, especially in the case of nitrogen. If you have too much nitrogen, that promotes a lot of weak growth. Weak growth is very attractive to aphids and other sucking pests. That's why I like the idea of actually, and I'll get into this a little bit later, about not having to fertilize your soil as often. And there are ways to do that, and that can save you a lot of money. This is one of the best charts I've ever seen that describes, I'll get out of your way so you can see, the uh, effects of soil pH on nutrient availability. I like to think of soil pH as pipelines in the soil. And the mycorrhizae and soil microbes that move those chemicals to the plant roots have to crawl through tubes. Now, this is just my imagination working here. But those little microbes, the mycorrhizae, are like nature's little waiters and waitresses moving foods to the table. And the bigger the pipeline, the quicker and more of the food those little critters can get to the roots of your plant. So if you have a pH, say, of 7.0, you can see that's where the majority of those nutrients really like it because that's the widest point of those pipelines. So, but if you're garden is between 6.5 and 7.5 on a pH scale, you can grow a wide variety of plants. But there are exceptions. 
Citrus trees, they like a slightly lower pH, around 6. That's why you always hear about iron deficiencies in citrus plants. If you're growing blueberries, they like a pH around 5.5. And for that kind of a low pH, which isn't natural in our soils here, our soils out west tend to be more alkaline. Back east, they're more acidic. They can just plop a blueberry plant in the ground. Here, you're better off growing them in large containers or watering troughs or something with a bit of size to them where you can really finagle the soil mix for blueberries, which, by the way, the ideal soil mix for blueberries is probably one-third pathway bark. That's the small bark that you could buy in a bag. One-third of peat moss, and that has to be well-saturated before you use it. And uh, a soil mix that you'll see described in stores as rhododendron azalea camellia soil mix. So those three ingredients in equal portions make for a very good low pH blueberry growing area. You may have to throw in a handful of soil sulfur to, to keep it on the low side, but generally speaking, if you want to grow blueberries, do it in a container so you can keep that pH way down. And also, if you're planting uh, blueberries, as I've discovered, uh, much to my chagrin, buy some bird netting too. <laughs> The robins love it. They're big on blueberries, but at least they give me an idea of when they're about to ripen, which apparently is any day now. They just aren't that particular about that. Also, know your soil moisture. Know how wet it is down there before you water. Take a soil moisture reading before you water, because your soil may not need the water, especially in the wet winter that we had here there's still a lot of moisture in the soil at the root zone, 6 to 8 to 12 inches down. So get yourself a soil moisture meter. The one there on the left, the yellow one, retails for about $100. But it lasts a long time. The little one next to it, the little green one, you can find at any nursery or garden center. It sells for 8 to $10. And it might last a few times. But if you do take care of it, it could last longer. It's up to you. And that thing on the left never breaks because it's made out of chrome or stainless steel. That is a soil auger or a soil probe. And you see that handle, not the handle area, but the tube is sort of slightly open on the bottom there. So what you do with that is you plunge that soil probe into the ground using that T-shaped handle on top, go down about 8, 10 inches or so, give it a quarter turn, bring it back up, and then look at the soil that you'll be able to see and touch in that cutout area of the elongated tube. How moist is it? Now you could do the same thing with a trowel. You could dig down eight inches and grab a handful of that soil, dig it out with a trowel, and then feel the soil. Make a dirt clod. Is water running down your arm? Soil's too wet, you don't need to water. Does it completely break up though as you bring it up? Oh, well, that means it's too dry. Now, if you can form a dirt clod and yet easily break it apart with your fingers, that's ideal moisture level. And again, you wouldn't need to water because for the roots of your plants, they're fine. Remember, just because the top of the soil is dry doesn't mean that you need to water. And just because you're hot doesn't mean your plants are thirsty. Always check your soil moisture and develop a schedule of watering. If you've got automatic sprinklers or a drip irrigation system, you can pretty well tell once the season settles down about when it's going to get dry down at the 
uh, root level by keeping records. Keep a garden diary and uh, keep track of uh, how many days there is between uh, wet soil and dry soil. Right plant, right place, oh for sure. You don't plant tomatoes in the shade. You don't plant roses in the shade either. But then again, you wouldn't put a hydrangea in full sun. Well, you could, uh, and maybe not enjoy the results. But again, we come back to all gardening is local. If you live in the Bay Area, where it's foggy half the time, you could probably get away with growing a hydrangea in, in what passes there for full sun. Winter Daphne, impatience as well. They like it on the north side of the house. And know the sunlight requirements for your plants. Those tags on the plants or on the seed packet, they're usually right. So try to follow those. So again, full sun, usually eight plus hours a day, six to eight, okay. Part sun is usually four to six hours of sunlight per day. If it's less than four, that's considered shade, partial shade, full shade. Sunset Western Garden book, you remember that book? How many of you have a copy of the Sunset Western Garden book? Ah, good for you. How old is it? I'll tell you how old it is. <laughs> it, it's at least 11 years old for the Sunset Garden book. There hasn't been a new edition since 2011, although I hear rumors from my friends in the industry that, oh, we're putting another copy together. Well, please do. We enjoy it because there are so many copies uh, and editions of the Sunset Western Garden book. It really is an indispensable book for California gardeners and, and Western United States gardeners. The cover has changed over the years. The 2011 version is the version you see on the left. The uh, 2001 version is that one on the right. And they change the information just about every issue, too, they, because they can only put in so many pages. They'll drop whole sections or add new sections. But they have really good planting information at the start of the book where they list all the plants for various conditions. Are you looking for a privacy screen to grow in full sun that gets 15 to 20 feet tall? Well, here's a list. Are you looking for low-growing ground covers for the shade? Here's a list. It's worth it just for that list alone. And if you go on Amazon right now and try to find a copy of the Sunset Western Garden book, you're going to see some ridiculous prices, like over $100. There's nothing wrong with used copies. All right, mulch. Anybody know me? They know, they know I love mulch. Uh, it's, I, I buy it by 10 yards at a time. And this was at, when we lived in Harold, and we had 10 acres, and I was mulching a lot. But mulch does a whole host of good for your garden. Mulch, it retains moisture, it keeps soil temperature constant, it reduces plant stress, it suppresses weeds, it gradually increases the soil organic matter, it feeds the soil, it attracts beneficial organisms that improve soil fertility and porosity. The mulch encourages plants, healthier plants, because it reduces the needs for pesticides and fertilizers. One of the very good benefits, practical benefits of mulch around trees, you won't run into the tree with your lawnmower or your weed whacker if there's a 12-inch radius of mulch around that tree. Now, theoretically, that mulch layer should actually go out as far as the tree limbs go out. But if you can do 12 inches around the base of the tree, not touching the tree trunk, but near the base of the tree, you're going to keep that 
tree trunk safe from mechanical injury, which is the number one cause of tree failure in our area. Lawnmowers banging into it or just getting a little too close with that weed whacker and, oh, there goes a piece of the bark. Yeah. Uh, mulch does a wonderful thing. And, of course, it, it, it can suppress the spread of brush fires, too, around on rural areas and, and around uh, homes. It's, uh, just There's just so much good about mulch. Now, I like to mulch with my neighbor's leaves. My neighbor has a 50-foot oak tree in their front yard. And every November and December, I'm out there raking her leaves. He says, thank you. I say, thank you, because I'm taking those leaves back to my place. I'm putting them in a metal trash can. I get out my weed whacker. I put that inside the metal trash can, a string trimmer, and grind up those leaves really small. Or I'll spread it out on the patio and run over it with my mulching mower to make those leaves really small. And then I'll take those leaves and throw them on top of my raised beds at the end of the summer gardening season. So it's not a case of the bed lying fallow. It's slowly getting fed by four or five inches of leaves on top of that garden soil. And usually I'll go a few degrees further than that, too. Before I put the leaves on top of that bare garden bread, I'll go and buy some bags of good green waste compost and put that on the bed. I'll also mix in some worm castings too and then put the leaves on top of that and just let it sit there. Another good reason to mulch your garden area and your garden beds, it breaks up the rain. People don't realize the force of a raindrop and how much a raindrop can actually destroy and compress and compact soil particles, destroying the air in the soil. I ride a bike a lot, and if I ever get caught in a rainstorm, one thing about rain and being on a bike, it stings it, when it's falling. It, it's, it's rather painful. So you put your head down and you pedal faster. The raised bed can't do that. It, it has to take it, but you're compacting the soil. But by putting a layer of mulch on top, when the rain hits the mulch, it then just gently trickles into the soil. It does so much good. Mulch. Everybody should be mulching. Mother Nature bats last. I say that to a lot of people. I'll give you the best example going right now. Tulare Lake. Tulare Lake existed 150 years ago. And then it disappeared after farmers started digging ditches around and moving that water around so they could farm the land. Well, there's been so much rain and so much snow that the southern central valley has got a new lake back. This was a lake where there were actual sailboat rides from Bakersfield to San Francisco back in the late 1800s. And that was only, you know, a foot or so deep, so they must have been really small sailboats. But... The fact of the matter is that area is so low and it's getting lower because of subsidence from pumping groundwater that the lake is going to be there. Water finds a way. Mother Nature bats last. But lend Mother Nature a helping hand when it comes to battling the bad bugs. First of all, identify the bug. You saw an excellent example here talking about ladybugs and especially the, the larval form of the ladybug. I like to call them the teenage ladybug in the San Francisco Giants warm-up jacket because it's kind of black and orange. And you see those and you think, bug, get the spray. No, don't. That's the baby uh, ladybug. So identify any bug before you take action. And by working with Mother Nature, one of the best forms of action you can take is just spray those plants with water if it's aphids. Just spray it with water. It'll knock them off the plant. They're soft-bodied insects. They're not going to recover. 
control the ants, too, because ants herd aphids around. Ants don't like boric acid. If you put out some boric acid bait, and you can buy them in, in little plastic canisters or in bigger containers, they'll take that boric acid back to the ant nest, and before too long, you don't have an ant problem. It'll take a couple of weeks, but it does work. Start with the least toxic alternative when it comes to battling pests. Right plant in the right place also dissuades insects, too. You need beneficials. And the best way to attract beneficials in your yard is to, what I like to say, is plant the Good Bug Hotel. The Good Bug Hotel are plants that attract beneficial insects. And you want plants that are in bloom at some point in the year, but have enough different plants so that there's always something in bloom. And people say, well, what do you get in the wintertime to attract uh, beneficials? Rosemary. Rosemary blooms in the wintertime, does a great job. One of the longest-lasting blooming plants, and it blooms from May through December, the California buckwheat. California buckwheat especially, the Zauchneria, although I think they've changed the names. I don't know why they keep changing the names of plants. I think it's just because they can. It's sort of like, why are you updating my computer again? Why do I have to change my system again? Well, I think horticultural nerds like to change names because they can. But basically, putting in plants that attract them is going to attract them for pollen. Putting in plants where they want to live that's even better, and it's usually evergreen plants. Birds do a great job of controlling insect pests. And if you have a lot of evergreen shrubs in your yard, you're going to attract year-round birds. Now, you may say, well, the birds are eating my uh, crop. They're eating my sunflower leaves or, or whatever, but they're also eating a heck of a lot of bugs. Having nothing to do one afternoon, I was watching the robins in the yard when they weren't eating the blueberries. <laughs> and they were hopping into the raised bed. And at the time, in the raised beds, there, there was nothing growing there. And I, what are they doing? And I watched them, and they were actually digging down and finding the white grubs and taking those off. Now, I, I, I sort of primed the pump for them because as I was mixing in uh, compost and worm castings, and I dig down, and you find these white C-shaped grubs, I would just throw them over my shoulder. The birds are always watching you. You know, it's not just the Chinese government. Birds are watching you all the time. And they will see where that white grub went. And they will see where it came from, too. And that's exactly what these robins did. And the robins call in the whole family. They'll bring in 15 or 20 robins at a time. They don't stay for very long, but they come in, they swoop down, they dig around, they grab something, and they leave. I don't have any grubs left. And so they'll find somebody else who has them. Try to get away from using powerful insecticides. Start with least toxic alternatives whenever it comes to controlling pests or diseases or weeds. And there's always something of a mechanical, cultural, or physical control that you can use to control pests. It, it might be if the plant is so heavily infested with something like whiteflies, it might be a case of, oh, well, let's get rid of the plant. But it also might be a case of, let's not plant so many of those and give those plants better air circulation so they won't attract so many pests. That's why Mother Nature uh, can be your ally if you let her. Yes, what old is new again? This is one of my favorite studies. It was uh, developed by the University of Texas, and I want to read it to you. That was done back in uh, around the year uh, 2004. 
and it was a study of heirloom vegetables. And the conclusion of this research at the University of Texas was that supermarket vegetables available in 1950 were healthier than the ones purchased in 1999. So at the University of Texas, they basically tested all these vegetables back in 1950 for their nutrients. Then they tested them again in 1999. Well, what happened between 1950 and 1999 that caused a decline in the nutrients of the vegetables you buy at the supermarket? It was hybridization. Hybridization, the development of crops that produce bigger crops, quicker crops, more resistant to a cold weather or pests. And when you develop these new hybrid varieties and give that plant a little extra oomph in one area, it takes away something. And what the University of Texas has described it as being that the emerging evidence suggests that when you select for yield, crops grow bigger and faster, but they don't necessarily have the ability to make or uptake nutrients at the same faster rate. This is a perfect argument for growing it yourself. When you're growing hybrid varieties, choose older hybrid varieties like the early girl tomato or heirloom varieties. Heirloom varieties and those other varieties that have been around for 50, 60 years that are still technically hybrid, but they act more like uh, heirlooms. It depends on what your definition of heirloom is. And trust me, there's a lot of definitions of what an heirloom vegetable might be. The benefits of growing it yourself are, are more and more clear. To attract beneficial insects to your yard, Use non-hybrid flowers. Use the old-time flowers, the heirloom varieties of blooming flowers because they're attracted to the fragrance. That's another thing that disappears in flowers that are new hybrid varieties with bigger blooms or longer seasons of bloom. They don't have as much fragrance, and the bugs know that. So stick with the old varieties. Interesting research going on up in the Sierra foothills on the San Juan Ridge at the Felix Gillette Institute. The late Amigo Bob uh, started this uh, probably 15, 20 years ago. He noticed as he was walking the trails and just walking around up there in Nevada County that there's a lot of Gold Rush era fruit and nut trees that are still producing. Well, how could that be? They haven't been taken care of. Nobody's pruning them. Nobody's watering them. These things have survived forest fires, drought, insects and whatever, what's in these species? Well, they have been abandoned, but they may have the key for the future of plants because they're, they obviously have genetically modified themselves to withstand fire, to withstand drought. So the Felix Gillette Institute, in combination with the University of Oregon, are studying these old fruit trees and seeing what they can get from them to make newer varieties that are more resistant to the ravages of the modern day. And if you go to the Felix Gillette Institute online, they're selling their fruit that they're getting from their orchards that they have developed from these old gold miner era fruit trees, a very unusual varieties that you've never heard from, and some of them are very, very tasty. So if you go to the Felix Gillette Institute, consider uh, uh, making a donation uh, to their efforts and you'll get a box of fruit. Oh, oh, two of my favorite heirloom tomatoes, Dr. Weish's yellow and black creme. Dr. Weish, they're both beefsteak tomatoes. Both can take the heat, and both are excellent slicing tomatoes and fairly productive. Unlike, probably the most popular heirloom tomato is the brandy wine. And the brandy wine is a very productive uh, uh, tomato if you live in Pennsylvania. 
where it came from. Out here, you, you might get one or two per season, and that's about it. Dr. Weish's yellow and black trim, though, are very productive uh, out here. If you're thinking along those lines, then you want to choose vegetable varieties that were developed in California. And sure enough, there's plenty, like the early girl was developed here in California. Celebrity was developed here in California. Consider heirlooms and consider uh, what, what's grown locally, too. One of the biggest purveyors of locally grown tomatoes is wild boar farms. And He's going to be a speaker next year. Good, Brad Gates from Wild Boar, Boar Farms. He grows his tomatoes over in Yolo and Solano counties, and I think he's going to start growing them uh, up in uh, uh, here in Placer County outside Auburn. And uh, he has been growing these tomato varieties, unique tomato varieties, for the last 25 years. He likes to call them the heirlooms of the future. But they're born and raised here, and that's a great place to start. Everything you know is wrong. You know, I, how many times have we heard that, and it's true. I bet your parents probably had the old-fashioned sprayer that they'd pump and, and spray their insects with, and what were they using? They were using DDT. Guess what? <laughs> DDT is no longer available for a very good reason. It killed birds. It causes cancer. And then if you've been around uh, Central and Northern California for any length of time, you know that there was a rush on back in the 60s and 70s to plant Modesto ash trees. They thought it was the perfect tree for the Central Valley. Well, it turns out the Modesto ash had all sorts of problems that developed over the next 20 years. Anthracnose, mistletoe, uh, splitting wood, and leaves that drop in May. Uh, it's, it's just a tree that it has gotten so unpopular, it's not even carried by nurseries anymore. And that's going to happen in every generation. But we thought at the time, oh boy, the Modesto ash, the perfect tree for our area. Well, everything you know is wrong. And Mother Nature also abhors a monoculture, too. So if you plant a row of any one species, you're asking for trouble. Because if there is a disease or a pest that gets into your area, it's going to take down that whole line of plantings if it's all the same variety. So so mix it up. Do a variety. Diazinon and Dursban used to be around, too. You can't find those anymore. And then there's uh, another talk. I, I may have given uh, a talk here a few years ago about garden myths. And... Vitamin B1 for transplant shock doesn't work. Tomato calcium spray to cure blossom end rot doesn't work. And I hate to say it, but really store-bought ladybugs are taking a chance about whether they're going to live or not. When they, uh, because they, they've done uh, studies at UC Davis where they bought store-bought ladybugs and released them in their greenhouses. By two days later, 95% of them were gone. They had left. For a, they surmise for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which was the competition from the existing ladybugs. Every species is territorial, and if you get suddenly dropped into somebody else's home, you may not get the master bedroom. <laughs> so they took off, and we're all wondering, well, is glyphosate next? Is glyphosate going to be the one that we're going to see disappearing in our lifetime? Uh, another thing, too, that's interesting, and again, this is Mother Nature batting last, the uh, blooms on the California Buckeye. The California Buckeye is in bloom right now. If you go down Sierra College Boulevard, you're going to see these white candle-like panicles of flowers sticking up on the side of the road from what look like small green trees. And those are the California Buckeyes. And these flowers look beautiful. They have an aroma. And that aroma is very attractive to hummingbirds and native bees, but it's poisonous to honeybees. 
And it, it doesn't kill that bee. It, what it does, it inhibits the next generation of bees. And you get deformed baby bees if the honeybees, you know, didn't have enough sense not to be at the California buckeye tree. But you find out soon enough. So that, that, that's sad, but at least the native bees, because the California buckeye is a native tree, the native bees have had centuries to adapt to it. Not so the honeybee. Honeybees are shipped in all the time from various areas. So uh, the California buckeye is a very interesting tree. It's one of the first to leaf out in February. It's one of the first, if not the first, tree of the year to lose its leaves. They lose the leaves in July. So you've got this bare tree sticking in your yard. Boy, isn't that a nice focal point. I, I think it's a back 40 tree if you have acreage or, or someplace where you can hide a tree. It's, it's an interesting tree to have if you don't have to stare at a bare tree from July through February. If it works for you, fine, but keep an open mind. Trust me, I have been second-guessed every day of the last 50 years on my on my gardening advice, and that's fine. I, I don't mind that at all. I often hear, well, that's not the way I do it, and I have plants. Well, good for you. I'm, I'm glad you do, but would you keep an open mind at least? Think about what you're doing to the plant, what you're doing to the soil. If you're using safe gardening techniques, you know, I'm not going to question your success. Good for you. Go ahead, put those eggshells, put that whatever you want, around your plants, even though there is no research to show that it does any good, go ahead and do it. The thing is, the new research, new techniques can actually make gardening a lot easier. So instead of having to go down to Starbucks to pick up that five-gallon bucket of coffee grounds to spread around your plants, you could do it with oak leaves from next door. So remember, too, that today's solution could become tomorrow's problem. Just be open to change. Oh, I tell this to a lot of people. Read and follow all label directions because those instructions that you can't read on the labels, that you don't have a strong enough magnifying glass to read them, it's the law. And that's why they're small. <laughs> read and follow all label directions. Get that big magnifying glass. Sometimes you can find the label online, but trying to read a label online can be difficult too because they, I'm not saying they deliberately do it, but when you try to blow it up, it gets really blurry if you're trying to read it. So always follow the instructions for when and how to apply the product. Now, I'm sure you can't read all that information in that uh, list of the label on the right because it is small, even though, you know, if you have, a, I guess, an eight-foot screen in your house, I guess you could read it. But it's amazing what's on there uh, that would tell you that uh, you better read this carefully. And you notice the word caution on the left. The signal word for that label on the right, which is a different product uh, called a systemic bug killer, is the word warning. There are three words that you will see on the front of any garden chemical, any garden insecticide or pesticide. It'll either say caution, warning, or danger. It's very hard to find any products with danger. Warning is in the middle. Caution is your least toxic. That doesn't mean you can go out in your shorts and uh, no shoes and, and, and spray the stuff and, and not escape harm. No, read and follow all label directions because those small label directions that you can't read will tell you what to wear, when to wear it, how to clean up, and what to do with that container. And also, in that information, you're going to find information on how to store 
that package. And that's where a lot of garden chemicals go bad. Because if you're just leaving those garden chemicals in your garage or your shed that is unheated or no air conditioning, so it's getting anywhere from 35 degrees to 115 degrees, it's going to age prematurely and not be very good in a short amount of time. Generally speaking, if you have garden chemicals uh, in your storage area that are over five years old, they're probably no good and you want to dispose of it safely. What you have to do then is, and that's a good habit to get into, every time you buy a garden chemical, a garden pesticide, write the date on the label so that you know when you got it. The, when we got our house in Folsom, they left their old refrigerator in the garage. I unplugged the refrigerator and just started storing the, the garden chemicals in there. And the temperature doesn't vary in that much. It's, it's not as good as a root cellar, but it'll do. So use chemicals very carefully and read and follow all label directions. You know, life is too short to put up with a problem plant. <laughs> That was something that Michael Glassman told me. Michael Glassman is a noted Sacramento area landscape designer. Of course, he's in the business of selling plants and designing gardens, so naturally that fits right in with his uh, business plan. But still, it's good advice for anybody. That plant is not going to get any better. It really isn't. If it's suffering and you don't see it change, well, what's going to change it? What's going to make it better? Eh, you might move it. That might work. Uh, probably, though, people try to love it to death, which just causes more problems with too much water or too much fertilizer. So your best bet is dig it out. That's shovel pruning, as the Rosarians like to say. Rosarians, they're cold-hearted beasts. If, if you know any Rosarians, you know, they love roses. They will extol their roses. But as soon as the next pretty girl comes along in the way of roses, out goes that one. And in comes the next one. They'll try to find a home for it, possibly. But uh, roses are tough plants, and if you just wanted to move them, you could do that too. And finally, yes, Bermuda grass is forever. It's a triple threat. Bermuda grass spreads underground with rhizomes. It crawls across the surface with stolons. And then those little turkey legs that pop up in Bermuda grass are seeds, which blow with the wind and start all over again. Itty bitty little pieces of a stolen or a rhizome of Bermuda grass can live for 50 years underground. And if you try to bring it up, let's say you dig out your Bermuda grass lawn, well, you're bringing more Bermuda grass stolons and rhizomes up to the surface, the rhizomes especially. And as soon as they get a little bit of light, a little bit of warmth, they take off and start growing again. So really, when it comes to Bermuda grass, Instead of thinking eradication, think control. Bermuda grass is married to your yard, and just as in any marriage, you have to pick your battles. <laughs> Call this one a draw. But let me end this with, on an optimistic note about Bermuda grass. For whatever reason, when we bought our old place back in the Herald in 1989, and we had 10 acres, it's like... I can have a backyard any size I want. Where do I want to put the fence for the backyard? So I figured, well, let's go 100 feet that way, 100 feet that way, and 100 feet that way. That's a big backyard. Well, what are you going to put in? Well, I guess for the time being, we can just put in a lawn. Lawns are a lot of work. And, of course, back then, Bermuda grass lawns were all the thing. Eventually, because, you know, the, older, the oldest gardeners, the older gardeners were wise. 
Why? Because we've been slugged in the head so many times by making gardening mistakes, we finally learn, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Well, with Bermuda grass, uh, and I wanted to get rid of it, I tried soil solarization, and it worked. Soil solarization is a process of cutting an area of turf down as low as possible that you want to get rid of. Maybe you just want to expand your garden. Maybe you just want to quit mowing. It could be a portion of it. It could be all of it. But cut it down as low as possible. Water the area thoroughly. I mean, run run your sprinklers on the lawn for half the day to get as water as deeply as possible into that soil. And then spread on top of the soil a layer of plastic. Two mil, maybe four mil plastic. Think of painter's cloth, painter's plastic, like you'd buy in a big roll to spread on the floor before you start painting. That makes an excellent one. But you have to secure it to the ground. You have to anchor it in all the corners and along all the edges so that air can't get in underneath it. And you leave it there for like six of the hottest weeks of the year. So basically in June, July, August, early September, pick a six-week period in there. Put down that clear plastic, keep it secure. If it starts to rip, fix the rip, come back. Six weeks later, you have no Bermuda grass left to a depth of 10 inches. Because by watering the soil and the clear plastic, not black plastic, but clear plastic, you've heated that soil up to more than 140 degrees. That kills soil pathogens. It also kills Bermuda grass rhizomes. And I can honestly say, and I'm not kidding about this, when we got done doing that, and you dig out that top layer and put down compost and bark, Bermuda grass never appeared there for the next 20 years that we lived there. And we just turned that into a little citrus garden. And it was, it was very nice. And I mean, if some Bermuda grass happened to pop up on the edge or something, it comes out very easily. But there was never Bermuda grass again. I can't say that for now. I don't think I'd want to go back to that old house and see if that is still true or not. But I'll claim for success for the time while it did work. All right. Thank you for uh, entertaining me uh, for this. And there's the Bermuda grass. And thanks for listening to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast available wherever you get your podcasts or as long as you go on the internet, go to gardenbasics.net and you can listen to it right there. I'd love to take your questions and uh, hear what uh, is on your gardening mind and because I can deflect with the best of them. <laughs> I did it for a living. Yes, ma'am. Yes, it would. Yeah. And actually, mint uh, it would probably be fairly easy to kill because it, it doesn't have a deep-rooted system, as deep as Bermuda grass. But it, but it does spread. It spreads mostly on the t top of the soil. But yes. Uh, and, but again, soil solarization only works during the hottest time of the year. If you want to try it in the cooler parts of the year, then you want to do something called sheet mulching. And sheet mulching involves putting down a single layer of cardboard throughout your garden area and covering it with mulch and just leaving it there. And then after four or five weeks, just punch a hole in the cardboard and put in whatever plant you want. And, and that'll work too. But that's a lot of cardboard. But still, it, it do that. There are instructions online. Uh, if you uh, Google or do an internet search of the phrase uh, sheet mulching, and especially with the words University of California, 
you can get some very good advice on how to do sheet mulching on a step-by-step -step basis. And also soil solarization, too. The University of California Ag and Natural Resources has lots of great information. It's my go-to site. That's one way I do my internet searches on garden problems, garden plants. I'll enter the, the pest. I'll put in aphids and then write UCANR. And by putting in UCANR, the, the search results that come back will be from the University of California. So I know that it's research that has been vetted by others and has been proven to work. So that way you don't get sales pitches for all sorts of uh, garden chemicals. Yes? Neem oil. Is neem oil okay to put on your vegetable plants? Neem oil, read and follow all label directions because with neem oil there are very specific temperature application rates. And you, it can't be too hot, it can't be too cold, it's not a cure-all. And make sure that the plant you want to apply it to is listed on the label of neem oil. Usually if it's not listed, they might say something along the lines of test on a small portion of this plant first before applying it to the entire plant. But yeah, read and follow all label directions when it comes to that with, with neem oil. I see a hand over here. Yeah, oh, way back there. Hi. Oh. Do you feel lucky? <laughs> An avocado growing a tree growing in a container that's five, six feet tall, and you want to move it. <sighs> Do you feel lucky? <laughs> And it really depends on where you want to move it to and what the soil is like there. It's got to be different than container soil. And wherever you move it to, it's not going to be near the front porch, probably. And that side of the house must have the ideal situation for that tree to grow. Has it bore fruit? No. No. Many of us have avocado trees like that. Yes. <laughs> Avocados have a very inst interesting pollination pattern. They have two sorts of flowers. They have A flowers and B flowers. And each flower needs to touch the other. The problem is the A flower is pollen receptive in the morning. And the B flower, which is the male flower, I might have this backwards, but the, the B flower is ready in the afternoon. So it's like, yeah, well, we've all faced that in our life, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> it's like... What do you do? Do you get a babysitter for it? I don't know. <laughs> thank you, Farmer Fred. Sure. Thank you, thank you. I'm sorry I ran a little long.